Good morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88. Right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning and you are with Lyle and... Minnie. And... Eliza. Yes! We have extra people in the studio this morning and it's going to be absolutely amazing. Absolutely. Minnie, what are you thankful for this morning? You know what I'm actually really thankful for? So I have a small group, which Liam and I both go to, and I was just thinking about it yesterday. So we're reading, we're going through Acts. Um, we often don't make it through a chapter. We made it through chapter six, which is a pretty small chapter. That's a solid effort, though. Yeah. Chapter six is Oh, there's lots in it. Oh, but they all have lots in it. That's the problem. Yeah, this is the book of Acts, yes. Yeah, but I'm just, I'm genuinely so thankful to have people to study the Bible with. Like... Absolutely. There's been so many years of my life I haven't actually had that. Our encounter with God is all about that today. Absolutely, yeah. You know, you think about it. Imagine if you never got to study the Bible with anyone else, how many unanswered questions you would have. Or just really weird answers you'd have. You know how sometimes well, that you, too. You know, sometimes you're like, it definitely means this, and someone else goes, or it could mean this. You're like, nope, that makes more sense. <laughs> what about you guys? How are you guys feeling? What do you think? Okay, so uh, I should just say that Eliza is joining us this morning. She's here for the interview, and she turned up early, so we're like, Eliza, jump, jump on the in. show. Why not? Eliza is our resident historian. Mm. We are super excited to hear about what uh, piece of history she's going to be talking about later on in the show. But Eliza, what are you thankful for this morning? I am thankful for small mercies. I, mm. I'm really enjoying the weather in, in Walsend this morning. Um, it's a little bit overcast and there's a nice cool breeze coming through. And for me, that's, that's a lovely reprieve from the weather that I've been having for the last few days mm. in, 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 Brisbane. in Brisbane. yes. And, of course, that cloud cover means that it's a nice even temperature. That's the wonderful thing about a little bit of uh, overcast in the morning. It's just like a warm, fuzzy blanket. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. And let's have some positively different news. I thought you were about to start reading your news stories for a second I was picking my piece of paper up, looking at it. Let me get into this. Too keen, too keen. So there is a town. It's called Inaminka. I just think that's a great name, actually. It's about, well, it's more than a I wonder whether there's one called Outaminka. Look, I couldn't tell you. Um, but it's about a thousand kilometers northeast of Adelaide. Has a population of thirteen people. Um, and until recently, it had only been serviced by the Royal Flying Doctor Service. Like that was just the only way you had medical supplies um, or service. Um, but in part due to anonymous donor, it now has a state-of-the-art medical center. Really? Wow. Yep, and it gives residents access. I thought they just go to Birdsville. I don't know where that is. Is that close? No, nowhere's close to Inaminka. Okay. Do, have you been to Inaminka? I've been very close to Inaminka. Okay. I turned off before I got there. Okay. And explored another track. Fair call. Lots of corrugations. Mm-hmm. Is it just a big lot of nothing on the way out there? Yeah. yeah okay. An yeah. epic lot of nothing. It's amazing. Mm. So is, Everybody there anywhere, should... is there anyone else to come into Inaminka? Yes. Oh. You think they've got yeah. staff there for this Facility? Uh, so for the first time in nearly 70 years, they have on-the-ground nurses that have just started last year. Right. No, how does that work? It's only just been open. No, maybe they have nurses in the town. But normally every everyone else just flies in. Yeah, that's right. So, so they've got like a So there's a bunch of stations around. Mm. And so, you know, service is a fairly wide area. Yeah, that's right. People so they don't have a nurse there just for 13 people? No, no, no. It's, yeah, all the surrounding, also small towns in the middle of nowhere <laughs> that could come in. Um, and they said that a lot of people do, and it's 
super, super useful for those guys. And this is something that I actually think we forget. Most people in Australia don't live in these small towns. Yes. Like, I don't know what percent. I'm just going to be like, yeah, 80% of us live near the, the coast. See, there's a clinic <laughs> There's a clinic in Birdsville, and it's actually a really, really nice okay. one. How far away? Where is that place? In the middle of nowhere. Okay, fantastic. So somewhere near Inaminka, but actually nowhere near Inaminka <laughs> because nothing is near any, anything out there. Yeah. But I've been to that one. Oh, interesting. I've had treatment in that one. What did you do? Had some stitches taken out. Mm. Yeah. Was it a good story? Uh, this is, well, it was It was an adventure. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Liam is telling us something that 85% of – no, I can't see the rest. Okay, Australia is one of the most urbanised populations in the world. 85% of the population in Australia lives in the city. Yeah. And that has been rapidly changing since COVID because a lot of people Ooh. have suddenly realised that, hey, you know what, what, I can work do. from home. Yeah, fully. And why am I why am I paying Sydney real estate prices when I can live, you know, I can sell my my house in Sydney and buy mm. a a whole vineyard in the Hunter Valley. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the price of rural property has just gone through the roof around here. Mm. And the same is true within an hour of Melbourne. House prices in Melbourne have dropped a little bit, but outside there's nothing you can get yeah. a small property on a bit of land. That's mm. it. It's it's all being snapped up. All your lifestyle properties just Disappearing. Yeah. That's a good thing. It's a really positive thing mm. for people's souls. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. There's no fun. There's no, it's, 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 it's bad for your soul to live in a vertical file, a human filing cabinet. Mm-hmm. I can care. You're talking about apartments. Yep. For those of you who don't understand Lyle's lingo, <laughs> he's talking about apartments. Flats. Block of flats. It's <laughs> um, so a human filing cabinet, is all it is. Yeah, it's a bit useless, isn't it? Ah, it's terrible. It does the job. But, mm. I've done it for four months. Mm. Oh. Never again. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Shudder at the thought. That's fair. So another story. Um, so in Pratton, a town in South Queensland, it's actually not too far from Toowoomba. So I grew up in Toowoomba. I don't okay, so this is somewhere home. that is actually somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, so the community members have an annual yearly Christmas party, which is – did I say an annual yearly? You did say an okay. annual Funny yearly Christmas, Christmas party. Yeah. Okay. How many times does Christmas come in your house? Well, sometimes not even one. Like, no. <laughs> okay. But yeah, so they do a Christmas party every year. Um, this year they're turning it into a fundraiser. So it's a little bit of a sad story, but it's also, I, I just like the community wants to come together. So a young family lost two children recently in a car Ooh. accident, two of four. Um, one was 13, the other was four. Um, and after the shock wore off for the lo- – so all of the locals took this really hard because it's a relatively small community apparently. Mm-hmm. People kind of know each other. Um, one thing they said about this family, they're like, they always wanted to help you out. They were always asking, hey, is there anything we can do for you? Like, you know, how are you going? Um, and obviously I think when we hear about kids' deaths, it often shakes us a bit more. Yeah, it does. Because it's, it's never good for anyone. But when mm. it's kids, you're like, ah, no. Uh, so the parents are still both in the hospital. As well as the two other kids, I think the two other kids are, are okay, um, as as well as the parents. But it it's, was a little bit serious. Like they'll survive, but uh, and yeah, and so the fundraiser is basically to help the family financially cover the costs of the funeral um, and just what other whatever other costs come up. Um, yeah, because Pratton is a very tight knit town, and the loss of it has hit them all. Um, I just this is something I find really interesting. We we're just talking about how we don't like cities, right? It's like oh. There's something very different when you go to a small town. And small town mentality is also a real thing, you know, that can be annoying sometimes. But there's also this beautiful heart of community that you actually see come out in the way people know each other and look out for each other. Yes. You know, even if I don't directly know you, 
I know something about your family. Absolutely. You know? Because if you're going to have any kind of social life in a small town, it's going to involve other people in that Absolutely. town. Absolutely. You live in Sydney, you have a social life, and it's like, well, you know, I know someone from Sutherland and someone from Penrith and, you know, uh, um, you know, someone from Hornsby, and I can have a great social life mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. But you can't do that in a small town. No. You have to know your next-door neighbours, mm-hmm. and that has to be your social life. Yeah. If you have an argument with someone, you can't just pick up your farm and move somewhere and else. Just, yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's Absolutely. right. If you're, you're in the city, you can still work in the same place, but move a few suburbs over, and suddenly your neighbours are completely different. Yeah, and never see those people again. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Look, they're very low stakes relationships, though, which I think mm. is less satisfying. If you have to work for a relationship, and if it starts off rocky, and you keep working on it, keep investing in it. Um, comes to fruition in a more beautiful way. Yeah, fully. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. All right. So um, i got a couple of friends who um, are trans, uh, one male, one female, and it's kind of interesting to talk with them about the process that, you know, they had to go through or that they went through to become trans. And part of that was, you know, they, they kind of felt like that was something they wanted to do. That was their desire. Um, and so they went and got counselling, and then and, and the counselling basically involved okay, this is this is how you transfer from being this gender to this gender, mm-hmm. and so they were kind of trained in how to be the opposite gender, and they were trained how to dress as the op- opposite gender. They were trained how to use, you know, like the, the the bathroom facilities, and they actually had to live as the opposite gender for uh, around about eighteen months before they were allowed to have uh, gender reassignment surgery, mm-hmm. and it's pretty tragic stuff, you know. They're, that both of these people have uh, pretty tragic stories to tell and pretty, pretty tragic lives. And, uh, of course, we know that these are people that are suffering with this are the most vulnerable members of our society. Mm. Now, what disturbs me is that when we look at the anti-conversion therapy bills that are being pushed through in Victoria and South Australia, well, you come from the ACT, you've already had it go mm. through down there, uh, Eliza, and... It bans any kind of counselling for people who want to change their orientation. It's now illegal in Canberra for a teacher at a Christian school to talk to a student. If a student comes to them and says, oh, look, I think I'm really a girl, um, or they're confused about their gender, um, it's illegal for a teacher to affirm them in the gender that they were born as. Mm. It's illegal even for a parent to affirm their child in the gender they were born as. I'm afraid if I was living in the ACT and I had children, I would regularly being, be breaking the law. Um, you know, because to me that's a, a moral requirement as a parent. Right. In fact, that's just basic parenting right there. Mm. They've made basic parenting illegal. That's a really. Here's the, but here's the thing. Let me come back to this. Yeah. If you want to change your gender, then you are encouraged and required to get counselling and to be trained how to change your gender. What about if you want to change your orientation? No, no. Suddenly, that's illegal. You know, and and the whole point is they say, well, you know, somebody wants to change their gender. Nobody's forcing them to do this. Is it's not coercive anyway. They just want to change, so we will provide the counselling so that they can change. Mm. But if you want to change your orientation, no, that's that's highly illegal. I don't understand. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a massive double what? standard here, right? Mm. So you're allowed to want to do one thing, but you're not allowed to want to do the other? Well, it's not about choice. Hmm. It's about license. Okay. Ooh. Expand on that. 
so it's it's not look if if someone if if someone's uh, attracted to the same sex and struggling with that because perhaps like for whatever reason maybe they're a Christian and they they know what the Bible says or a Muslim or a Hindu or, or a Buddhist and any kind of um, religious conviction or other kind of conviction um, that they don't want to live that lifestyle um, they could very easily you know want to make a decision to be more hmm, normal is not a word they like to use but to, to fit with to um, manage that attraction and yet to go for counseling to get any help to do that to Mm -hmm. get an accountability partner to uh try and overcome those homosexual tendencies is illegal even Um, if they want to even if they make that personal choice even if they want so personal choice is being outlawed if they're looking for help Mm. it's illegal to give them help it's it's just absolutely bizarre you know, this is, you know, and, and of course they, 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 you know, go on about all of this conversion therapy and torture and coercion and nobody's supporting torture or coercion. Mm. And, and here's the thing, right. torture and coercion doesn't exist. Never has. Doesn't exist in Australia. Never has existed, does not exist, never has. And so they're bringing this legislation in to like, oh, all of these, ter- you know, we're going to ban this terrible, you know, torture and coercion, which has never existed. And everyone's like, oh, well, we've got to have legislation for that. That sounds like a good thing. It's actually got nothing to do with torture and conversion because that doesn't exist. Mm. It is, this legislation exists for only one reason, and that is to attack Christianity. This is, this is Daniel Andrews continuing war on Christianity right here. If you, if you look at it from the Victorian perspective. Well, what does it say about Christianity and other religions or anyone who thinks that there might be a problem with homosexuality or um, with uh, transitioning between genders? What does it say about those kinds of people if um, the government, who we're all supposed to trust, um, thinks it's necessary, so necessary to protect people from them that they need draconian laws? Hmm. Oh, that this. creates a bogeyman. Uh-huh. That's fear mum. Fear mum. That's right. One. Mm. Absolutely. Um, and so the the legislation, you know, it only exists for the purpose of um, uh, attacking Christianity. If you go to South Australia, you've got the Equal Opportunity Amendment Bill. Uh, in the middle of that uh, title, in brackets, is religious bodies. It says so that. Is, that's what it says. So Ooh. this is the Equal Opportunity. In brackets, religious bodies amendment bill. So these guys aren't even holding back. They're like, yeah, you know what? We're going to go after religion and we're going to attack religion and we're actually going to put it in the title of the bill. This is what we are doing. They are not trying to do this uh, behind the scenes in any way, shape or form. Um, And basically with this bill, it makes it illegal to teach biblical sexuality or scientific gender. Hmm. And that's the bizarre thing, you know, because you've got a secular, a secular government that has, you know, and secular people that for so long have talked about, you know, the value of science and the importance of science. Mm. And we need to have science instead of faith. And we need to use the, you know, use empirical science to make our decisions, you know, with what's observable, testable and repeatable. But now, well, actually, when it comes to biology, we're not going to have science. We're going to have ideology instead. Mm. It was never about a division between faith and science. No, mm. it's always been about ideology. And now they're actually revealing their hand very, very clearly through their legislation to show that this has got nothing to do with science. It's all about ideology. Um, I'd be curious to see, you know, just as the 
time unfolds a little bit, how church bodies do respond to this in whatever religious capacity that looks. Because, you know what I mean? Like, it's easy for us to sit here and talk about this. But, man, when you're in the position of someone someone coming to you and you not being mm. able to offer help mm. or offering but knowing it's illegal, mm. that's a harder place to respond. And the church has always been the place that has upheld the law um, in in the highest form. Mm. Um, the church is constantly not only teaching people to respect God's law but also man's law. Mm. Um, and yet to be in this position is really paradoxical that how can we obey the law if it means letting people suffer in, alone in pain? Mm. Um, and, and that's an awful position to be in, but I think church leadership at the ground level is going to have to step up and, Absolutely. and speak up for people and in solidarity and be counted. Mm. They certainly do. You know the the whole the whole concept of conversion therapy. I find you know kind of fascinating because conversion is a word that relates to salvation. That's a religious mm. word. Therapy is a mm. word that relates to uh, medicine. That's a medical word. And what can I do to fix myself? Y- y- indeed, and by conflating the two together, they have created a basically a hammer with which to beat at Christians with because we don't use the term conversion therapy. That was something when it was invented and thrust onto Christians. We talk about conversion and that's when the Holy Spirit comes into somebody's life and changes that person's life. And we talk about therapy, that's when you go to the doctor and you get medical treatment. But uh, by, you know, putting the two together, they've created, they've invented something by which activists can attack Christians. We could say so much more about this, but what a world we live in. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Uh, Eliza Maher is joining us this morning. We're super excited to have Eliza Maher, our resident historian. This is this is so exciting for me. We've never had a resident historian before. Uh, this is the second, third. I've never been a resident historian before, I don't think. There you go. Okay. Best for Um... This is what, your second, third interview? Third. Third, third. time. Third time. And we're talking about Australian history, um, an area of your specialty, British colonial mm-hmm. history. <clears throat> and so we were looking at, uh, we wanted to talk about some, you know, some famous people in Australia. We live here in the Hunter Valley. Uh, we have a suburb near Maitland that has just been named after this person. So who are we oh, talking about? really? Yes. I did not know that. Oh. We're talking about Carolyn Chisholm. Okay. Actually, this is a suburb. In Canberra, where I'm from, uh, also named after her. Um, okay, so she's super famous then. She is super famous. Who and is this person? Exactly. <laughs> super famous. <laughs> Minnie's never heard of her. Carolyn Chisholm is not only super famous in, in terms of Australian suburbs, but she's also, uh, or at least a few years, uh, several years ago, I don't know if she's still up, but she was in the running for a sainthood f- for the Catholic Church. So everyone wants to claim her. Everyone wants to associate <laughs> right, right. themselves with her. Um, because she uh, did incredible work in the middle of the 1800s in and around Sydney uh, with women, especially women and children. Um, she, the, One of the big things that she organised was the immigration of women and children from Britain to the colonies mm. um, because the colonies were in a bit of a mess and she uh, she thought the... Uh, so one of the ways in which the colonies were a bit of a mess is that uh, they had loads of convicts, loads of sailors and soldiers, and they were all men. Mm. And so you had this huge gender imbalance um, in Australia. And where did those men come from? Well, a lot of them had come 
from Britain. And so there was a huge gender imbalance there as well. There were loads of excess women, if you like, in Britain. And in Sydney, there were lots of men, which created a, or at least in her eyes, she saw that as creating a more violent, licentious society. Well, this is very true because if we look at uh, India today as an example where um, sex selection abortion Mm. has created... Uh, a, a massive, massive gender imbalance of more men than women. Right. Um, you, now you now we're reaping a, an environment, a culture in which there's a tremendous amount of violence. There's a tremendous mm. amount of rape. There's a tremendous amount of men who just kind of give up because they're never going to find a woman. Mm. Um, and it's a it's it's really really horrific mm. the environment that it has. And we're we're dealing with that right now. So we're talking about something happening in Australian history in the past. Uh, of course, the first thing that comes to my mind is an environment like that. I would imagine that prostitution would be rife. Right. Mm. Absolutely it was. Um, and Carolyn Chisholm saw uh, women being dragged into that as though like, they felt they had no other choice and they felt there was no work that they could uh, get, no gainful employment, no support to get into gainful employment, um, and and so what other choice did they have in a foreign country without their family, mm. um, far far away from home? They didn't know how the society worked. Um, if anyone's ever travelled to a different place and lived in a different place for six months or so, they'll understand this completely. Um, you might think, oh well, I know if if I want to get something printed, well I know I can go to office works or a local library, but in another country. Mm. Where would you go? How would you find out? Um, You rely so much on having good friends on the other side, whether you make those friends quickly or you know people already. And so Carolyn Chisholm was that point of contact. Mm. Okay, was she she here during a a, a time period when women were being shipped out as convicts still? Uh, No, she wasn't. Um, So not many women were shipped out as convicts because not – just like today in prisons, 90% of people in prisons are, are male. Sure. Um, but convicts' transportation had ended by the time that she mm-hmm. really got into her work. Um, and so uh, Sydney really wanted to recreate itself anyway as, you know, we're not a convict town anymore. We're respectable. <laughs> and, uh, we, can, we can have you know, dignity in the eyes of the world. And so there was a lot of public support for Karen, Carolyn Chisholm in um, bringing – in, in helping the immigration of free settlers and um, women especially because they would civilise all the men mm-hmm. um, and families also. Uh, so there was a lot of – Carolyn Chisholm was, was very popular in her time. Um, she was called the immigrant's friend. And actually there's a story of someone writing a letter to her from Sydney um, at, at a time when she had um, gone over to London for a conference or something. And they wrote a letter – and they addressed it to Carolyn Chisholm, the immigrant's friend, <laughs> near London. No address. That's amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. And it reached her. Imagine that's cool, hey, being so known by that name. People are like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, we mm. can find her. Like, mm. That's cool. So that's the kind of notoriety she had yeah. even in her time, which is really unusual for historical figures or for people that we – like Mozart in his time, no one knew about him, no one cared about him. He was just some young random guy. Um, but later on – we pick up his music and we think, oh, this is amazing. Let me come back to this gender imbalance that we had in Australia in the early colonies mm-hmm. where you've got you know, 90% of the convicts that are coming out of men, 
the people that are being sent to transport them are male sailors. Right. The soldiers that are being sent to guard them are men. Mm. You would have had, you know, the wives of some officers, you know, and you know, and a small smattering of female convicts that were coming into the country. Mm. Uh, would that have produced an environment where there was abuse of the local Indigenous women? That's a really good question. Um, a lot of this is hard to know for certain, and so historians are generally quite reticent to mm. speculate. But if I could speculate, I would say absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think if we were going yeah. to be realistic. Yeah. 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 You know, if we were going to be realistic, we would say this is going to be just a very, very bad situation yeah. for women all around. Yeah. And the other thing that you would you would find, I would think, is that the women who have come out as convicts and have then become free because we're now coming you know, further down in history to a time, but they have a background of disadvantage to begin with mm. because, you know, it was very – I imagine it would be rare if not unheard of for an upper-class person to be sent to Australia as a convict. I, I I can think of a couple of exceptions, but but yeah, yes. a couple of exceptions. And yeah, exceptions yeah. is the is Proves the valid the word. That's yeah. right. right. Um, so yeah, most, you know, this in, in many ways, this was like England's like, oh, we got lots of slums, we've got lots of uh, you know low class people. Mm. Our country would be better off if we didn't have slums and low class people. So send them you know That's far right. away, Absolutely. and we'll have this whole eugenics things that will clean up uh, the UK. Mm. And they sent them all to Australia, and Australia thrived. Praise God! But. Mm. Um, if you've got people that are coming from disadvantage, mm-hmm. even though they are now free, then they are not going to have the education mm. and you know all of the advantages that a person needs right. in life right. and are going to very, very easily find themselves in prostitution. And immigrating adds that extra layer of disadvantage that yeah. you, know, you don't know anyone, you don't have the skills to thrive in a really different kind of society. And part of the reason that the dregs of of British society came to Australia and built something new was partly because of people like Carolyn Chisholm um, who were willing to put themselves out there, take a risk and and help people in in dire straits. Um, But also because if if you um, don't succeed in one environment, maybe you'll succeed in in another environment. Maybe you have the grit and determination and um, hardworking spirit that you can make a go of it in Australia, even though uh, it's a frontier colony and the um, standard of living is much lower, you can still, if, if you have the uh, persistence, you can make a good go of it in immigration. And we see that even today. If, That's right. If you know yeah. the, the immigrants you know, um, who you might be friends with or, or um, live in the same area with, a lot of them are just insanely hardworking people Mm. Um, and their children perhaps are less hardworking they take it for granted Um, but the people who emigrate the first generation immigrants Mm. they're they're always they're they're overwhelmingly um, on point and focused and and diligent and working three Okay, so, so coming back to Carolyn Chisholm, right here, you know, we've, we've got a suburb just out of Maitland, a brand new suburb that's been named after her. Mm. But there's a house in Maitland that – can you tell us a little bit about that, what, what that was all about and what it was used for? There is a house on uh, – it's number three Mill Street in East Maitland. It's called Carolyn Chisholm Cottage. Mm. And it's a heritage-listed uh, home and it's a former hospital and benevolent asylum. And what happened is that Carolyn Chisholm – 
not only lived there herself, but she also invited um, female immigrants to live there with her. So Carolyn wasn't just involved in getting women into work, but she also, uh, this wasn't the only house, but it's the only existing surviving house that you know, bricks and mortar, that is the house that Karen mm. Chisholm lived in, um, in East Maitland, that survives to this day. So could we describe these houses that she set up around the place as being early versions of women's refuges? Absolutely, yes. Right, so she's kind of yeah. invented the concept of having a woman's refuge. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I can't think of a precedent. I mean, I'm sure someone will... will comment and say, oh, yeah, remember remember this instance or that instance. So, so, um, but yes. I was just going to say, so who was she? Like she obviously lived in Australia. Right. What was her story? Carolyn Chisholm was, she was uh, born in, in England. Mm-hmm. Um, she was born into a very devout Anglican family. Right. And they were very- Wait, 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 wait. You said she's born into a very devout Anglican family. Yes. That's right. And she's going to be made a saint, maybe, if she does enough miracles, in the Catholic Church. Yes. Interesting. Okay, you've got to unpack this one for us. I need to know what's going on here. We'll, we'll get there. So she was raised in a family that took um, private charity very seriously. And they're very philanthropic. They sent money off to all, all parts of the world. And they supported the poor in their own area as well, yeah. on their doorstep. Um, and so she grew up recognizing that Christianity wasn't just about a list of doctrines you believe, but in how you lived out your life. Mm. True faith, undefiled, is this, caring for widows and orphans in their distress. And Carolyn Chisholm took that on as something she learned from her parents to engage in um, meaningful, practical Christianity. Um, But her parents also really encouraged her and her other brothers and sisters to engage in uh, issues of, of public interest. And to have opinions at a time that was that was incredibly progressive for parents to do that around you know, the start of the 1800s, and yet she had the opportunity to do that and to think for herself. And she got into habit a habit of thinking for herself. Hmm. She married a an officer who was a Catholic, um, Archibald Chisholm, and she didn't become Catholic at first, but um, she grew to she wanted to make a decision a decision of her own for her own reasons and so she married Archibald Chisholm on the condition that her philanthropic work could continue in any form that she chose which is a really I, I think um, really sums up how important this work was for mm. her um, she left very little behind she seems to have been um, quite a private person but so she married him and he was an officer and, of course, um, the Napoleonic Wars started up again and he was sent off to India. We don't tend to think of India as a, um, a war that is associated with Napoleon because Napoleon was French, but the French owned lots of... Um, Large portions of India. Lots of colonies in mm. India and in uh, Southeast Asia more broadly. And so um, she went off to India and she... Um, noticed a similar kind of thing happening in India because um, she was obviously living in a garrison and the wives of the officers were um, surrounded by... the Barracks at the time had a reputation for being very licentious places. Yes. And so she set up a school for officers' wives and their children that was very popular, but she only could stay a few years. And Archibald was moved over to Sydney because of ill health and... um, that's 
So she, she came to Sydney at a roundabout kind of way, which wasn't uncommon for the time. People travelled a lot in those days um, and travelled around the British Empire where things were uh, more predictable. They wouldn't travel between English and French colonies as much, um, but that's a bit of who she was and her background. But she was a very private person, and it's very hard for historians to go back and find evidence of um, what her views were on things other than the things that she practically wow. did. Okay, so here's a question that's come through from a listener just on the uh, text line. Was there any effort Was there any effort made to bring to Australia the family or wives of convicts? That is a really good question. Um, I think in the 1830s there was a, a process started. So convict transportation finished in 1840, except for Western Australia. They had their own thing going. But... Um, in, in the 1830s, there was an effort made to, um, if if someone if a man was convicted of a capital offence and it was commuted to transportation and sent off, sometimes or increasingly his wife and children were sent with him. Um, so, in when he arrived in Australia, he wouldn't be in a prison necessarily. He would be um, basically on probation. Mm. So he'd be sent off. He could work as a an apprentice to an apothecary or, or um, on a farm and yes his wife and children would would often go with him that didn't happen right at the start of convict transportation because they hadn't figured things out by that time and um, they didn't realize how important it was to keep families together especially when you're trying to um, reduce res- recidivism rates and mm. um I've read many stories of um, convicts from the early era who, you know, had wife and family in, in, in back in the UK. Mm. They were sent to Australia. They were never able to yeah. go back to the mm. UK, and they just married somebody else and started a new life. You know, it was just yeah. and kind of forgot about the old one once they got mm. here. Which is you know, some tragic, tragic mm. stories from that era. And a bad system can breed that kind of tragedy. Mm. And so, what you've got really here is Carolyn Chisholm stepping into Australia and reversing, kind of like. Um, breaking the cycle in many mm-hmm. ways of a very, very bad system and really a nation builder for our country. Absolutely. Yeah, that's hugely Absolutely significant. Builder. Fantastic stuff. Eliza Ma, thank you so much for joining us and uh, sharing some fascinating history. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.